Okay, I don't know if we're all here or not. All right, now my name is Steve Overholt. Uh, I'm a teacher. How many of you are actively teaching school or plan to teach school this coming year? Okay, I, didn't, I really didn't know uh, what kind of a, a crowd this sort of a workshop was going to uh, attract. <laughs> Let's see, I'm looking at some of you. I'm recognizing a few of you and not very, very many. Good to see you here, Nancy. Uh, but uh, I teach school in uh, my home church at uh, Ozark Mennonite Church uh, in Seymour, Missouri. Taught, uh, I li- we lived in Romania a number of years, and so uh, I was involved in some schoolwork there. And so my entire adult life has kind of been centered around teaching school, and I love it. Uh, I love pr- uh, presenting things, uh, whether it's mundane materials uh, to huge ideas to my students and, and basically to anybody who will listen to me. <laughs> if I can just get a captive audience <laughs> and get them locked up somewhere, uh, one of us at least is going to have a good time. <laughs> good to see you here, Adrian. All right, uh, so that's a little bit who I am and tells you just a little bit about me. All right, uh, the, what we're going to be looking at this afternoon is familiarizing ourselves with the culture of Jesus' day. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not sure why you took this, why you decided to come here. Uh, I, taught, I've, I have taught church history classes a number of times. One of uh, a more amusing thing that happened, uh, this was especially at a Bible school in Romania, uh, one young man kept coming back. He would keep coming back to these classes. But he let me know it's not because he likes them. It's because there's no other one that he, that he likes. It's, you know, he, he's here kind of because he's forced to be by circumstances. So maybe that's a little how you're feeling. Uh, but my, uh, I need to I have these handouts I'll give to you. What I have on the board here is only... Um, or if I could just pass them. Or yeah, if you want to pass them, that's great. Speaking about uh, historical subjects, of course, is a, is a huge assignment because there are so many details and so many things. And then if you're fascinated with it and you love it, uh, what do you put in and what do you leave out? And, and how do I get the, the gist of what I want to share across to uh, my students or to whoever is listening? So I have trouble with keeping myself in time or getting over my material. And I'm going to work hard at trying to get to the conclusion, even if I have to jump over some other stuff. And uh, if nothing else, maybe this would give you a little bit of an idea of some of the things that I think about and some of the things that I think are important as we look at the Gospels and how they can help, uh, help us as we read the Gospels. Okay, so familiarizing ourselves with the culture of Jesus' day, I have a verse there at the beginning. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Every one of those clauses or, and phrases are just are fascinating. Uh, why was it worded that way? And exactly what did he mean by the fullness of time? But God sent his son and he was made of a woman. Uh, at the very beginning, we read of, of God telling Eve that, that uh, your seed will destroy the head of the serpent, not the seed of Adam, but of Eve. It's fascinating. So uh, Jesus, made of a woman, also under the law. Uh, and that's what we'll be looking at just a little bit. Okay, so introduction. Why speak on something? Does everybody have a handout, if you want one at least? I have maybe a few more up here. Okay, uh, why speak on something like this at a teacher's gathering? Like this sounds like something we'd have at a, at a Bible conference or you know, a Bible school or something like that. Uh, one thing I have to think of a favorite phrase of my father, as a teacher, you need to keep your, the light on in your eyes. When you are... When you are presenting uh, something to your students, if it's anything connected with the Bible or something like that, be excited about it. Enjoy it. Uh, love it. And so as you dig into uh, Scripture, and in this case we're specifically looking at the background of the Gospels, this can help make a whole series of events become alive and interesting. And at least for me, to present that to my students, that's, that's powerful. Uh, that's one idea. Another, another thing is as we look at... Um, at uh, our own culture. There are a lot of invisible issues connected with the concept of culture. We'll talk about that a little bit. But as we look at how Jesus responded to his culture, in what way 
was he simply Jesus the Jew, a fascinating teacher, a miracle worker, miracle worker and we believe Lord and Savior? Uh, in what ways was his life encapsulated by his circumstances and his culture? In what ways did he go against it? Did he rea uh, react or respond to that? Because he did. His life was not just simply shaped by a number of circumstances. And so that gives us light also on what to do with that. Uh, one other thing I would really love to stress, uh, as we talk to our students about uh, the Gospels and about Jesus and about this, any story that's in the Bible and, and really any other story that moves us, we need to get our minds into that story. You know, wrap ourselves into that thing and find out, enter into it creatively, and then project it to our students in, in a creative and, and manner that really touches them where they are now. In the case of the story of Jesus, we not only need to get into the story in order to present it, we need to get into it to become part of the story. The story of Christ is continuing, and we are living part of that story now. And so, again, I find this very informative as we do that. All right, what do we define as culture? This is an adaptation from uh, the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. I think the largest dictionary there is. I had to look down at number five. The intellectual side of civilization and 5B, the religions, religion or religions, the civilization, the government, the customs, the artistic achievements of a people, especially in or at a certain stage or place of its development. Uh, you could puzzle over that for quite a while. But when you think of culture is what we do and how we do it and in many ways um, what we look like and what do we expect when we look at other people. And uh, Okay, I'll ask a question. How many of you have lived in uh, somewhere outside uh, in a foreign culture uh, for any period of time? Have you, have you done that? Okay, when you do that, you realize, hey, do you know what? I'm not just... Uh, a Mennonite or, or whatever. I'm not just a person. I'm an American. I am who I am. I, there are some things that we do that are just, other people think uh, are ridiculous. Uh, just a little bit of uh, a side note here. One thing I do not do when I speak to people, I do not put my hands in my pockets. That's uh, one thing I learned in Romania. You just do not do that. That's very rude. Doesn't the whole world know that? Okay. <laughs> well, it kind of entered in into my own consciousness in that way. So it's, it's sort of an example of what do, what do we do? Uh, how does culture guide us? And uh, all the surrounding details about our life, including what's brought it up to this place, uh, it's all about history. It can be about geography. It's all about how people live. It's sort of the invisible glue which we use to relate to each other. Uh, this morning, um, Brother Jonas talked about uh, body language. Body language is indiscernible without culture. You know, we, we know what they, what they uh, stu our students, when they're upset with us and so on like that, and maybe even happy every now and then. Uh, but, you know, it's body language that tells us that. Okay, how do we relate with that culture? By that culture, I mean especially how do we relate with the uh, culture of Jesus' day? And, and often we contrast things or compare things when we want to relate with something. So uh, what is it, how is it like or unlike our own, and how was it, like or unlike what we read in the Old Testament. I, again, we could spend a long time on this, but just very briefly, uh, one way that it was unlike our own is that there was no artificial division. Uh, this is true of practically all ancient cultures and a lot of uh, what people sometimes say Stone Age cultures or something like that. There's, there, are no, there was no artificial division between secularism, secular life, and religious life. Re religion permeated the whole thing. All right? So... What you believe affected everything about what you did, right? That was, and, and well, I'll get into that later. Uh, another thing, uh, the word culture comes from the Latin word cultura, which has the concept of agriculture. Uh, ancient culture, as a rule, was very tied and connected to the land. How you related with the land was very much a part of how you lived. Again, there are people that still live that way, uh, but especially in the industrial west, we have kind of distanced ourselves from the land. Uh, there can be a famine. <laughs> right now we're having a drought, the worst drought in 50 years uh, in the Midwest and, and beyond. Uh, I don't think any of us are expecting to starve this, this coming winter. Uh, in many, many of these ancient cultures, uh, we would not know whether we're going to survive or not. And uh, certainly a lot of people aren't. Uh, 
old people, children. Uh, it's not going to leave anybody unaffected. So imagine, that's a shock. All of a sudden, think about that. What, what if we were facing that because of the drought that we're having this summer? Okay, so uh, these things are a little bit some differences. One thing that is similar in our own uh, kind of subculture as Anabaptists, uh, we're back to the thing of that religion permeates the whole of life. And of course, we don't necessarily want to stress that we are religious. We want to stress that we are followers of Christ. And that affects everything. Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then these things will be added to you. So it's, it's there all the time. Uh, and that way, maybe we can relate with uh, some of these uh, aspects of Jewish culture better than um, what some other uh, normal people <laughs> don't in uh, maybe the cities and, and different, uh, different places where, where you just go about life. And, and uh, I've often thought, what would it be like to live and not have really much of a consciousness of God. Not much of a consciousness of there are things that are right and wrong, and we, you know, we do the things that are wrong sometimes, but you know, we kind of are t- troubled by it too. Uh, just to do it and, and not even be thinking about it. That's all has entered into our cultural instincts. Okay, a little bit coming a little bit more down to our subject. How is it like or unlike what we read in the Old Testament? We all know that how, what Jesus, when Jesus came to the earth and, and, uh, and started his ministry, and John the Baptist was there. They were living in what we call an Old Testament culture. And yet, there, was a, there were a lot of differences between what we read about in the Old Testament and right at the time of Jesus. Uh, like the Old Testament, we see the Old Testament starting with creation, the Exodus, and so on. We'll talk about that just a little bit. But uh, there was a lot of progression in there. And so things had progressed there were a lot of differences, and we see that even happening in the Old Testament. Uh, maybe I should just ask. This is going to be primarily more of a lecture, but uh, we'll have a little bit of participation here. What are some things that you think of that being in the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, that you don't read at all about in the Old Testament? Just some terms or some ideas or something. Okay? I'm not going to push you too hard, yeah? Pharisees. Pharisees. The Pharisees, you get to the New Testament and in and the, and the very early part, it's saturated through there and it's like this is part of daily life here and you never read about them up to that point. Okay, So that's definitely one that I have down. Anything else? Exactly. The Romans, uh, in the older ones you hear of, um, they have their own king and then there's, there are Persians and, and Babylonians but you never hear about Rome, at least not directly. Right? And again, that's a very big part. Okay, so one thing, maybe there's something else you have want to really say. Okay, Speak up if you want to. Raise your hand. Make so I can see it. Thrash it around. Uh, we read about a lot of uh, different Jewish groups in the Gospels. We read about Pharisees. We read about Sadducees. We have mention of a zealot and maybe even a group. We read about the Herodians. Uh, we read about the Romans. We don't even necessarily just read about the Romans when we read about rulers, but we also read about uh, a family or a man named Herod. Right? He was actually a family uh, name, but that kind of brings a little bit of sense of shock to us. Uh, and, was, and he was not a Jew, necessarily. He did have some kind of Jewish background, but it was primarily uh, from an Idumean or an Edomite background. Okay, so how, and, oh, another thing uh, is, was mentioned earlier this morning... Uh, what was Jesus? What was a favorite term applied to Jesus? Rabbi. Rabbi, Rabbi means teacher. teacher. Now, isn't that a blessing? <laughs> Don't we feel special? Okay, uh, Rabbi. Now, here's a here's a fascinating little little fact. Uh, the word Rabbi became very important within the Jewish culture and, and Jewish history. But the New Testament is the first time we ever read about it. That's the first time that word actually appears on any page. And, and yet it was normal. Okay? So that shows how long some, something can be, and all of a sudden it pops up on paper, and there we have it. Okay, so in one sense we could say that Jesus was the first official rabbi, but of course that's not true. Uh, there were other rabbis as well. All right. Um, Okay, uh, we're going to talk about the Pharisees, and, and uh, I'll, uh, remind me, and we'll address that. Okay, <laughs> certainly. Okay, 
There was another difference yet uh, that I would like, want to mention. Something we never read about in the Old Testament and yet is, is normal in the New Testament is the concept of going to worship at the synagogue. Now, the temple was there, but not synagogues. Uh, and so, how did these changes come, come about? So, let's just get started with number one here, and I'm just going to move fairly rapidly, if I can, through this. All right, the formation of first century Palestinian culture. We first of all look at the Old Testament foundational identity, and I wanted to uh, comment about this because this was so important in their mindset and how they thought about who we are. First of all, they had the land and a covenant with the land. They had the Torah or the scriptures, and they had the temple, which involved a lot of Levitical ritual. Right? That was a part of who they were as Jews. Each one of these three were very important to them. All right, uh, how did this historically come about? We first of all read about the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And beginning especially with uh, Abraham, God gave him the Abrahamic blessing, which was later called the Messianic blessing, which is, in thee shall all the nations of the world be blessed. Right? It's a powerful statement. Because you were born, anybody who's ever lived is going to be blessed. Amazing. This was repeated to Isaac and Jacob, and uh, maybe also to Judah. All right, uh, we see things moving from Moses, and then the captivity in Egypt, and then there is Exodus and the giving of the law. I have Exodus in bold print because it's, that was, in their sense, the beginning. This is where we really came about. Everything before that is prologue. And so Exodus is where the story really, really begins, and that's as we leave Egypt. Uh, incidentally, when we think about the nature of God and what God has done, in our culture, one of the first things we think of is God as creator. He is the creator of the world. We are all indebted to him as his creation. Uh, a Jew was more likely to think of God as deliverer. The concept that, that uh, God as creator is mentioned in the Old Testament, definitely, but about four times more than that is mentioned, I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Four times. Uh, that's his favorite designation of God throughout the Old Testament. I am the one who has delivered you. I have brought you out of Egypt. So listen! <laughs> listen to me! Okay? And yet, here we struggle. We see judges, kings, and prophets being brought up. We see God in all of this uh, creating a people. He calls out a people, and he structures them. He, go he governs them. And Remember, this is in the Genesis account. We, we have many years all of a sudden collapsed in this one book. And it's a little bit like, uh, he says, he destroyed the world, he started over again with Noah, and he said, I will never again destroy the world with a flood. And so he's trying something different. He's working, reaching into the people, creating his own people, which he says will be a blessing to others, and will bring a light to the world. All right? So uh, all of this is, is a type of, of progression. Okay, uh, we see a lot of apostasy happening. We're all familiar with that, I think. And, and eventually there comes a time of tribulation, of punishment. And God is saying, uh, you're not following me. You're not following me. And you just hear his heart breaking as these prophets come and, and speak to the people. And so finally, uh, of course, there was Israel, the ten tribes that were taken away earlier than that. And then there was Judah in exile. Uh, again, that had a huge impact on forming the mind of the Jews and, and, their, and their culture. Now, one thing that, as they were sent away into this land of captivity and in exile, uh, Jeremiah especially was in, very involved over that time, and he said, you will need to learn to live there. You're going to have to learn to pray for the peace of the country in which you are captivity. You pray for their peace, and another translation will say welfare. Pray for their welfare, because in their welfare will be your welfare, and their peace will be your peace. All right? So pray for it, work with them, and just enter, uh, you know, keep your identity, of course, but enter into that society and become a blessing to them as aliens. Uh, we see a picture, of, actually, of the, of the New Testament church right there working in the world. And so it was there that in a foreign land that they learned to gather in small groups and pray and worship. They did not sacrifice. Sacrificing was done only at the temple. And so that was the historical core of, this, of the synagogue, and they kept that when they came back, when the ones who did come back uh, to, uh, to Judea. There. All right, uh, not too many years after that, we hear of Cyrus uh, calling for a return. 
to go back, and this was only a small group. <laughs> they had learned, they had adapted very well. They had become, uh, I don't want to say just completely comfortable, but they had become good in their land of captivity, and many of them did not want to return. And as the story continues, it's the ones who re did return that suffered a lot of privation, a lot of hardship, a lot of difficult times. Uh, very interestingly, as, as they went into that land of captivity, uh, one of the things they did do is form a concept of banking and, and um, a business of, of being uh, merchants and traders, which they have kept uh, they've kept that reputation up to the present day, and that began with the exile, not before, but with the exile. And, uh, and because of those connections that they had, the Jews, of course, were, were instrumental in founding uh, the whole banking system as we know today. And we could say that the, being taken into exile had more impact on, the, on creating the monetary system that we have today than any other one historical incident. And so, fascinating, because we all love money. And so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, here we're, we're reading about that. We shouldn't really love money, but uh, I think most of us aren't, don't hate it too badly. Okay, uh, Cyrus calls for them to, to uh, return, as and a remnant does. We see them rebuilding the temple and so on. And then we have Alexander the Great coming. This is uh, under his... Uh, massive armies as they swept through the entire Middle East all the way to India uh, up into the north of what's today Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, his armies could not be stopped. It seemed he was a military genius and they were on fire and boy, uh, the world suffered. And as they, as they went, they would plant these cities and they would, uh, they, these would be Greek cities and they sort of captured the mind of the people and they would also take on the you know, they learned from the cultures that they invaded. But this did something very profoundly significant and it spread the, a common language throughout the entire Middle East and also up into Europe. And that's the language of Greek. And so uh, Alexander the Great is the reason why the Old Testament, although it was written in Hebrew, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. That became the common language of, of the universal language, a little bit like English is today. But you have to remember that even maybe more so, um, when the Apostle Paul wrote uh, the book of Romans, he was writing to the center of Latin culture. He did not write it in Latin. He wrote it in Greek. And that's, I find that quite fascinating. And that's basically due because of what Alexander the Great did. And that affected uh, many, many things. Uh, the, the Greeks loved sports. They loved different building things. They loved... Uh, they had concepts of, of government that were different, and they had a lot of different ideas. And, of course, a lot of these ideas took a form of philosophy. And so they would discuss things. Uh, and we, we read about that, especially in the book of Acts. Uh, reading, reading the book of Acts with understanding Hellenistic background. Helena is how you would say Greek, or Greek is the, is the adjective Greek. And so that's why we call it Hellenistic. That's where that word comes from. Um, after he died... Uh, his huge kingdom immediately broke up. It, could, it was too big to be governed, and so his four, governor, his four generals divided it up. There were the Ptolemies, who were centered in, in Egypt, and the Seleucids, which were centered in, in uh, Syria, and Israel, or Palestine, was caught in the middle of these, and it was kind of tossed back and forth. Ptolemies started with, with reigning that part, and they divided into six different areas, which were still that way in the New Testament, six, six different uh, sections. Okay? Uh, that was one thing that happened under the, under the, Ptolemy, the Ptolemies. And, and meanwhile, they kept planting Greek cities. Uh, we'll get to that. I mean, we can mention that just a little bit later. This was eventually uh, tossed back to the Seleucids. And uh, they took over and they, 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 they needed money. Uh, there was a power rising up from uh, the West or, uh, that was really starting to push on their door pretty hard. They needed money to fight these guys, these people that were... Coming at them were the Romans, <laughs> all right? And so they, were, they began to tax the people very, very heavily. And, and, uh, and meanwhile, they, because the, the Jews worshipped their one God and so on like that, they became very aggravated with them and began to persecute them enormously and, and uh, you know, practically threatened them with extinction. It was in that time that we have, we're starting to enter now really the, the intertestamental times. How many, have any of you read the Apocrypha? Okay. It's, a, it's a fascinating little book. Um, 
well, it has a number of books in it, of course, but uh, the, the Hasmonean Revolt or the Revolt of the, of the Maccabees is quite a fascinating story and filled with all kinds of intriguing details. But as uh, what had happened, the, the, the temple was utterly defiled. That's where he, he, he butchered pigs in it and sacrificed them on the altar. And the, the thing went out that everybody who has a Jewish altar has to sacrifice to some kind of, of Greek god on their altar. Uh, and a lot of Jews went along with it. There were people who were totally swept up with this uh, Hellenistic identity. But uh, they came to a small village, and there was a man there named Matthias. who uh, He was a priest, and he refused to do that and, uh, and killed a collaborator who would. And because of that was going to bring the wrath of the king down on them, they fled to the hills and began a guerrilla war, in which Matthias was killed fairly early, but his, he named his son Judas to take over, and Judas was called, his nickname was Maccabee. Not his actual family name, but his nickname. Maccabee means hammer. And so he went to striking, you know, he, he could hit the enemy uh, hard, and he did. Uh, interesting little uh, tidbit here for you wordsmiths. Um, see if I can get this right. There was a, a woman who encouraged her seven sons in, in, in the book of Maccabees, and they were all tortured to death uh, horribly uh, for their faith. The scene is so grotesque and awful, and because it's found in the book of Maccabees, that is where we get the word macabre, or macabre, or macabre. I think in my dictionary it has about three different <laughs> pronunciations for it. <laughs> All right, so uh, how you go from an Aramaic word for hammer to the English word meaning extremely grotesque, there you have it, right there. Um, so they revolted uh, through a series of events. They managed to gain back the land, and we don't have time to go into this too long, but it was, it was fascinating. First, Judas was eventually killed, and then Jonathan, his brother, took over. And Jonathan, they kept making strides. And Jonathan, one of the ways that he uh, was able to accomplish this is he got himself to be appointed a high priest. Uh, and so they started kind of working with their overlords, the Seleucids, the Syrians, and then at the same time with a lot of tension between them. And then Jonathan was eventually assassinated, and then we have Simon, his brother, uh, taking over, and he became not only uh, was named high priest, but also uh, an ethnarch, or kind of like a king or a ruler, and then it passed on from his sons on. What became fascinating about this series of events is there is a, a man named Lord Acton gave a, a, a historical quip, quip, maybe some of you know it, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, there's, I don't know of any better illustration than these people. Uh, they started out with fighting for the purity of their religion and, and of, of worshiping God and the, the uh, freedom to do so to becoming extremely corrupted themselves. And there was, again, a group of people that, that rose up in protest and uh, that it actually do have their roots back in the Old Testament, but they were called the pious ones, and then they became known as, uh, there was a kind of a split in there, and they became known as the separate ones, the pure ones, the ones who insist that the law of God be uh, kept. And this isn't happening. You guys aren't supposed to be priests, high priests. That belongs uh, to the, to the uh, family of Zadok in the Old Testament. And so this group was named the Pharisees, right? That was their beginning in protesting against a compromise in their own people. And so they said, no, uh, we need to follow the word. Uh, it's very important. And uh, they would not back a lot of these um, Hasmonean kings, even one queen named Salome. All right. Uh, eventually, we have two brothers uh, who were both from this descendants, and they were fighting each other. Both of them now appealed to the rising superpower of the West, the Romans. Actually, uh, Judas Maccabee had already made a treaty with, the Rome, with Rome earlier than that. He had said, you, we, you are fighting our enemy, we're friends, right? <laughs> and so uh, he had made a treaty with, with Rome. That was all the way back at the beginning of this revolution. And now Rome is overcoming uh, all of Syria. And there's a man named Pompey who is leading a huge army into there. And both of them sent ambassadors saying, please come uh, be on my side of the civil war. All right? So Pompey came in, he listened to both of them, he chose the one, and, uh, and, and brutally destroyed the other one, uh, sent thousands of them, um, people were captured and sent to Rome as slaves, and then that would help create a significant uh, Jewish 
minority in, in Rome. There were already ones there, probably, but this was a huge influx of Jewish people there when they became emancipated later. All right. Uh, he basically overtook the whole country and said, all right, now you're under Rome's, uh, not necessarily direct rule, but under our oversight. Uh, he did enter also, the, uh, by the way, I didn't, I didn't mention one thing. Back when Judas was still fighting, uh, they had made a lot of uh, head ground. They had pushed back these Syrians, and they went into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. It was in total disarray, and uh, like I said, all these abominable sacrifices had been put there. They completely cleansed it and uh, put things back in order then, and that um, became then a feast day on the Jewish calendar, which is called the Feast of the Dedication, or the Feast of the Rededication. And that's mentioned at least once in the New Testament, John 10.22, I think. So uh, you have that coming. Then there were some of the stones of the altar, I think it was, that they didn't know what to do with. They wanted to build a new one, but they didn't know what to do with the old ones. And so they buried them, and they said they will wait until a prophet comes to tell them what to do with those stones. Right? So it's a little bit of a sign that you know, the voice of prophecy had, had pretty much died out. All right, uh, so now back to the present day. Pompey, Pompey also decides that, hey, this is fascinating. What is this temple? It's functioning again and all of that. He had actually, uh, the, the party he had revolted against, he had uh, ruled against and had been in control of the temple. And so he went into the, actually into the Holy of Holies and came out amazed. He said, what in the world? There's nothing there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, so he was astounded, but nothing actually happened to him. He went on to uh, Egypt where he eventually met his end. Uh, so it was under th- that circumstance that uh, Rome came onto the scene. He appointed, uh, it was under Pompey, I believe, that a man named uh, Antipater was appointed. Antipater had two sons, Phasiel and Herod. And Phasiel was eventually killed in an uprising, but Herod was granted rule by the Romans if he could just maintain control, and he did. He came in and he brutally slaughtered the people. All right, so uh, we get now to the general uh, Jewish worldview at the time of Jesus, and this, these are the answers that I have up there. For number one, uh, I have this, I'm indebted to N.T. Wright for this. Where are we? Or excuse me, what is it? Who are we? We are Israel, the people of God. Uh, where are we? We are the remnant in our own holy land. Remember, land was very important. But we are still, or again, in captivity or exile. Uh, we're always under these pressures. All right, well, what's wrong? We have the wrong rulers. And some of us have compromised and sinned uh, by the wrong rulers. Uh, pagans are ruling us, or, or uh, compromised Jew, or like Herod, and who is not interested in following the law at all, but was actually very Hellenistic himself. And I could have told a lot of stories about that, how Hellenism kept being the central idea. It was a constantly a threat, even in, in Jewish, uh, the center of, of Jewish identity there. And still today, there are many Hellenistic cities, uh, ruins, of course, that come, that are existing. All right, so now back to our fourth one. Uh, what is the solution? God needs to act and reestablish his rule, and kingdom. And until then, we need to simply be faithful to uh, our covenant character. All right, now, very briefly, the constitution of Jewish-Palestinian culture. There was Judea. If you look at your third page, I think, you'll see these maps. Uh, Judea was the center of the remnant where Jerusalem was. Uh, the Samaria was a little bit further north. And then there was... Uh, Idumia, which is a little bit further south, Idumia has, are, are basically the Edomites. But they also embrace, uh, not Christianity, but Judaism um, earlier than Herod, but in a very kind of corrupted, compromised form. North of that yet, you have Galilee, which of course we're all familiar with. This was brought under, under um, Jewish control by the Maccabees. It had not been before that, and so it was, uh, even in the New Testament, it is called Galilee of the Gentiles, because you know, Jews didn't live there, but some of them went there and it, to get land and settle in it and so on like that. And so that would have been the story of Jesus' background there. All right, and then there are some Hellenistic cities or Decapolis. We see that on the right where it says Batanea and Praia. Uh, one story that happened in, in this region is when Jesus uh, drove out the evil spirit and they went into the 2,000 pigs and went over the edge, you all know that story. Well, why did they even have pigs? Jews aren't supposed to have pigs. Well, they weren't Jews. 
They were Greeks. Uh, and so that's a, a, if you catch that, that they had gone to the other side, they had entered into these, this Hellenistic area. And then, of course, the Romans were there. The Romans were not powerfully present. The ones who kept order were, uh, had, had been Herod. Oh, well, I should say this. The house of Herod. Very briefly, uh, Herod is a family name, and there are six Herods mentioned in the New Testament. There is, first of all, Herod the Great, the father of them all, sort of. And then three of his sons, I think he had uh, nine known sons. He had ten wives, nine known sons, five daughters, known. Uh, of those sons, three of them are mentioned. There's Herod Philip, who was in charge of the Decapolis area. There was Herod Antipas, who was in Galilee. Uh, maybe, and maybe he had Decapolis as well, and, and uh, Philip was in the northern part, uh, Bathenea part. And so Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, which would have been the ruler in Jesus' day, and Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus was uh, worse even than Herod in some ways, and the Jews went to the Romans and said, we can't handle this guy. Replace him with somebody else. And that's where we have a Roman governor or a prefect coming in. And of course, the one we all know the best is Pilate. Right? So that's how a Roman governor actually came over part of Jewish uh, territory was at the Jews' request. Because, uh, and by the way, the only mention we have of Herod Archelaus is when Joseph was coming back from Egypt and he heard that Herod Archelaus reigned in his father's stead and he said he's not going to Bethlehem, he's going back home to Nazareth. Uh, and so that gives you just a little bit of an idea of what Herod uh, Archelaus was known for. And there were, a lot of, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of uprisings, a lot of warfare in his time too. Just a lot of cruel things were done. Okay. Uh, but the Romans were there. They had, a, they had an outpost in Caesarea. They had a, had a uh, fortress built on, right in the temple called the Fortress of Antonia. And you know, it shows up every now and then in the New Testament. Okay, religious uh, Jewish groupings. We see the Pharisees and other Torah scholars. The Pharisees were, were separatists. They, they said, let's take Scripture seriously. Right? We, we read about the Sadducees. They were basically in charge of the temple. Um, they were much more what we would call liberal or did not believe many things that, we would, that the Pharisees did and that we would also believe, such as the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they did not believe in angels. They did not account for the authority of the word of God outside of the first five books of Torah. Okay, and uh, a few other issues like that. There were the Herodians. They were the ones who collaborated with, with Herod. There were the Essenes. We do not read about them in the New Testament, but they were, were there, uh, kind of scattered throughout the country. Uh, a lot of people think that they were connected with the uh, Qumran community, where the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've heard about that. That's still actually very controversial, whether those were Essenes that lived there or not. Uh, but they were, they were definitely there. They were rigorous ascetics who said the whole system is corrupt, we're not going to the temple. We're not having anything to do with it. We're out of there, and we are going to live very pure, very separated lives, and we will have practically nothing to do with anybody. Right? The Pharisees were also separated, but more uh, based on the Old Testament, and, and they would definitely mix with the people as long as they were living what they considered holy lives. All right, and then, uh, of course, the vast majority of the... Oh, I missed the one. Zealots. Uh, there were... I'd love to talk about zeal, the concept of zeal, but it comes from the concept of, in the Old Testament, where Phineas killed two people uh, with, the, with his spear because they were sinning together. And that was called, the zeal of the Lord moved him. And so, when someone was filled with the zeal of God, they were going to kill, even if it meant their own life would be taken. That's no problem. Uh, they are going to be filled with that powerful zeal. A zealot phrase, and of course, they used that to rebel against Rome uh, later, but a, a zealotic phrase that seems to have come that Jesus used was, if any man will follow me, he must take up his cross. The concept of taking up your cross. Remember, this is before Jesus died. They didn't think about Jesus dying for them. When they thought about somebody who was so filled with zeal that he will endure a cross in order to, uh, to follow what he believes is right. And so that's one phrase that seems to come from them into Jesus' vocabulary, even though the methods of Jesus were definitely counter to what the zealots did. Uh, our word for zealots today is terrorist. Okay? When you are going to, you will uh, commit suicide in order to uh, kill or attack somebody else. And so that's a little bit where they were. Uh, then, of course, there were the people of the land, and these were the, the masses of people. Most of them didn't belong to any of this group. Some of them were quite faithful. Some of them were not. Uh, it was hard to live. We have to go to work. Uh, it's just hard staying on top of things. 
And uh, beyond that, and during the times of the festivals, there would be literally thousands of Jews from other lands would be coming. These were the Jews of the Diaspora, the scattering, the ones who had been sowed abroad. And so they would also come, the, when the New Testament speaks about Grecians, it says there was one time in, in the book of John, it says uh, some Grecians came and told Philip we would see Jesus. Right? Those were not Greeks. Those were uh, Greek-speaking Jews right, from outside of, of Judea. Okay? Uh, other, there are other times those are mentioned. And then, of course, there were the sinners. <laughs> These are the people that we know are just wrong, okay? terrible. Uh, by the way they're living, they're heretics, apostates, and so on. Okay, uh, general characterizations of Jewish culture uh, and religion. There were different household uh, religious practices, uh, how they dressed. We all can relate with that. Uh, But beyond how they dressed, uh, a favorite mark of of separation for the Jews was what you ate and who you ate it with. uh, That was a primary mark of separation. We do not eat certain things, and we show our separation unto God by doing that, and we do not eat them with sinners or with non people who are not of the people of God. Okay? A big deal for them. Lots of purity laws. Uh, we might mention something a little bit more about that. And of course, in the middle of all this, they had to make a living. Uh, taxes were high, and it didn't matter, uh, didn't help facts that sporadic taxes could come along and just suck the life out of them sometimes. You know, people needed something. A king needed something. Uh, just tax the people brutally, and uh, the rich were often excused. That was another terrible thing uh, from that. Okay, they, they also meant, uh, would meet for weekly worship at their synagogues. Where they would talk about the law and so on. Uh, there was usually a scheduled reading every day. Every time there was a specific type of reading that would be read. At that uh, specific time, there was a specific reading for each, each, uh, each service. And so when Jesus uh, spoke at the one synagogue... And he opened the scroll at the right place. You know, he knew where the, where the, where, what place he was uh, expected to be read that time. And he said, this applies to me. Okay, uh, the schools, the Jews were the, by far the, the, had the highest literacy rate in the entire ancient world. We don't hear of any other culture that stressed reading like the Jews did. Uh, of that time. It was amazing. They really stressed it. Now, unfortunately, they basically stressed it for the boys. Uh, but anyway, they didn't know any better, maybe. <laughs> but uh, they had a rule that uh, for every 25 boys, there should be one teacher. Uh, if you had, like, 40, okay, well, then the teacher could have an assistant. Uh, after that, they had to break it up into two <laughs> teachers. So, oh, wow. And it centered definitely around reading the, the Bible and uh, speaking about it. Okay. Schools and then festivals. There were a series of festivals, and I have that on the page on page four, on your fourth page of your handout. Um, it'd be good for you just to go down and read that. And I thought about trying to go over that and tell you where each one comes from and why they're there. But that's that's just a huge story in itself. But uh, I did give a few, uh, one of them about the, de- the dedication of Jerusalem and so on. And there are two of them. Oh, the bottom uh, table will tell you where there are references throughout uh, Scripture and in the Apocrypha to those. Okay, so that gives a little bit of idea of where, we're, where we were, where we are now at, uh, at, during Jesus' time. I, didn't, I failed to mention the very last point of, of the, uh, D there, the preceding point, and that is you all know that the Jews did eventually rebel against Rome and uh, their entire culture was destroyed there in Judea. They rebelled twice, uh, one of them shortly after Christ. In AD 66 it began, and, and by AD 70 the Jerusalem had been destroyed. In AD 73, uh, Masada, the last, uh, the last uh, temple, not the last temple, the last fortress was taken. Okay, And then they rebelled again in about 131 uh, through 134 under a man named Bar Kokhba, who also said he's the Messiah, and he is going to lead you to liberty. And it was... The, the destruction was so brutal. It was just immensely powerful, and no Jew was allowed back even in to live in Judea after that. 
for, uh, and that was the beginning of what we now know as the Palestinian issues. Other people came in to live in that land. All right, reading the gospel through a cultural lens. Uh, point number three. This is kind of the meat a little bit of what I wanted to get at, and we're, we're going to have to kind of push along. Uh, I want to make something really clear. I do not believe you need to be a historian to be able to read the Gospels. I don't believe you need to be interested in exactly this for the Gospels to make sense. But I do believe as we study the Gospels, it can become very interesting to us and it can become more applicable to our situation. Like I said, how do we react to our culture? Uh, Studying the culture of Jesus' day has helped me a lot with that. Uh, And this is, of course, over the years. All right, so some illustrations. Uh, behold the Lamb of God. Oh, another thing. I, did not, I don't say a lot about Jesus' practice, how he lived, the fact that he's our example, and so on. I'm talking more about what he said. But there are some things also connected with how, what he did. Uh, for example, he did a lot of healings. Um, he, did, he did a lot of exorcisms or the casting out of evil spirits. So the Jews were known for that throughout the ancient world, to be able to do this, and even after Christ they were. You remember that story in Acts, right, about when those boys told that man that was possessed that we adjure you to come out in the name of Jesus whom the Paul preaches, right? And the Spirit says, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you, right? And he leaped on them and attacked them. That's an example of exorcism. Usually an exorcist would cast out a a demon by calling him to come out in the name of a greater demon, a a greater spirit, right? And another thing, they could sometimes use um, herbal ways of doing this, and the favorite one was to take some types of roots roots and push them up their nose. Uh, So Jesus was an amazement to his people because he would speak the word, and it would happen. He spoke with authority. Uh, Everybody was, was, they were talking about that, how he had authority over spirits, he had the authority to talk about the word and about life in a way that even the Pharisees just marveled. Uh, and, and the common people, too. They said he spoke with authority, not as the scribes. Okay, now, uh, reading some of these things, just to give some brief examples here. Uh, one of the first things we, we read about in reading John is John the Baptist announcing Jesus as the Lamb of God. Uh, I just put that in there because we're all very familiar with what he meant by that. They, we're familiar with those ceremonies where the lamb was offered up and so on like that. But have you ever thought about telling people about Christ in a culture that knew nothing about this? I remember being impressed as a young person when hearing about these uh, missionaries to the Inuit people who had no idea what sheep were, who had no idea of any kind of sacrifice or something like that. And so they, their best thing they could come up with is a buffalo calf or a caribou calf right, for lamb, right? So we're very blessed with knowing some of these things about, about culture. That's cultural insight right there. Jesus in the wilderness, um, the place of testing. I was very blessed with a thought from Ray Vanderlyn, who has done a lot of study on these things and takes people on tours. Uh, he mentions throughout the, and I have not scientifically studied this, I'm just taking it as his word, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God speaks about the land. He speaks about your land, that's Judah, or Israel. Palestine. He speaks about Pharaoh's land, the land of darkness. That's Egypt. The whole world belongs to the earth, but he specifically refers to one type of land as my land, and that's the desert. When he wants people to meet him, he takes them to the desert, and you see that happening quite a number of times throughout the Old Testament. And so Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, And of course, he met uh, the tempter there as well. Announcement of the kingdom. Jesus and, and John both said, uh, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we're coming down to this point right here. What's wrong? We have the wrong rulers. What do we need? God needs to act and reestablish his rule and his kingdom. And that's exactly what those people would have understood Jesus to say when he says, the kingdom is coming. Something, God is going to act. He's going to take over. Something big is just about to happen. All right. So that would have arrested their attention very quickly. We see Jesus talking about um, the acceptable year of the Lord uh, in, in Luke 4, 16-21. That's when he was speaking at the, in the, to the, uh, his own home synagogue. Uh, the acceptable year of the Lord was usually understood as a term meaning jubilee, right? 
At least that's what some scholars think. There's some controversy about that. But the fact that uh, you're familiar with the concept of the Jubilee, right? The debts will be forgiven. We will, everything will be set right. We'll be back. God's judgment will come, and we are made right. And Jesus is saying, in me, that's what you have. Um, it's, it's, again, tremendously powerful. The I am centrali- centrality of Christ, centrality of Christ. Um, the, the synoptics, or Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present Jesus calling for the kingdom, announcing the kingdom to come. John does not. He, does, he only talks about the kingdom I know of, I think, in four places, and they're all highly significant. But instead, we see Jesus giving very powerful comments about himself. Everything is centered on me. I am. I am the good shepherd. Uh, that's, again, a reference from the Old Testament. I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. This is constantly repeated. After leaving um, the upper room with his disciples, that's the end of John 14, he says, arise, let's go. And then John 15, 1, begins with, I am the... I am the vine. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. They were probably passing the temple, and there was a, there was a massive vine there uh, that was illustrating the identity of the people of God, the Israel, which is, comes from uh, Isaiah, where it says, I have planted a vineyard, and this is my people. Right? Jesus points to that and says, I am the vine. All right? And so he is, called as cent- uh, he is pointing to himself as central in identifying the people of God. All right, we come to the Beatitudes, uh, which were counterintuitive personal blessings. This just can't be. He says, blessed are the poor. And I can imagine those people just saying, and, and Matthew announces poor in spirit, how can this be? Poverty being a blessing. And yet uh, the concept of non-accumulation or watching how much we accumulate, being careful about that thing, is saturated, again, through the New Testament and is... Um, Huge. I know one man um, made a comment and a, a thing of um, five steps to spiritual power. One of them was, I will own nothing. We are terribly possessive. Not, we, we, we laugh at little children because, you know, it just comes right out in them. That's mine. Okay? <laughs> All right. We as a people and as Americans, Canadians, <clears throat> my wife is Canadian, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're terribly possessive. And so, blessed are the poor. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. That, again, is a huge theme. Blessed are the pure. Immediately, when a Jew thought of purity, he's going to think of ritual purity. How are you impure? You're impure if you touch blood. You're impure if you touch a corpse. You're impure with a lot of different ways. It's not necessarily sin. You're just impure. You can't go to the temple that way. You, can't, you have to stay back for seven days or whatever. If you've uh, visited a Jewish home, a rich Jewish home, Upstairs in the upper room, you would see a baptismal font where they would immerse themselves. They were constantly baptizing themselves to wash away ritual impurity. And so, uh, and when Jesus was touched by that woman who had an issue of blood, he became impure, ritually impure. And yet he's saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It completely revolutionized the understanding of, of purity. Uh, we could go on with that. Light and salt, right after that, he says, uh, Ye are the light of the earth. And then he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. I'd love to. But I want to move on. One, one concept, concept here. Salt was terribly precious. And even today, every language in, in the Western European uh, culture, including English, has a word relating money with salt. Does anybody know what that word is? Salary. Salary comes from the word salt. You are, are you worth your salt? Are you worth your salary? Those two, that's because salt was considered so precious. And so again, you can hear people saying, we are the salt of the earth. We are the preservation of the earth. Jesus says, in you, the, you will keep the evil of the earth from self-destructing. I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, we talked about the Pharisees, and I might come back if we have time, but I'm doubtful we'll jump down to the 13th one there, the leaven of the Pharisees. I think this is something terribly important to think about. Uh, you asked... Is, was Jesus a Pharisee? Certainly, the Pharisees were not interested in identifying Jesus as a Pharisee. Right? Whether Jesus did himself, he left somewhat unspoken. What we do know is that there were a lot of agreements. When it comes to theological agreement, they were together. Uh, practically everything that set the, set the, the Pharisees apart um, from other people 
theologically speaking, Jesus agreed with. And later, when the Apostle Paul uh, identified himself as a Pharisee, even after he was a Christian. And so was Jesus a Pharisee? I don't know that there's any proof saying that he actually joined a Pharisaical school or that type of thing. But he had a lot of theological agreement with them. Uh, he also rebuked them more sharply than he did anybody else. Uh, and I find that absolutely powerful. The Pharisees, were, their, their whole concept is we are going to take the word of God seriously. Uh, the reason that God's judgment came on, on our people is because they didn't. And so we are going to. And that's going to call God to act, right? Because we are being faithful. So this is very important. Uh, and so these festivals and these rules, all of them got applied very rigorously and more so than even in, the, in, in throughout the Old Testament times. And yet Jesus spoke very sharply to them and he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And one time he said, that, which is hypocrisy. Uh, I, I challenge you to study that. Uh, what, what all did he tell the Pharisees? One time he told them that there are things such as tithes and mint and cumin, something like that, uh, which you focus on, which is good, but you ignore mercy, justice, and it um, seemed like something else, truth, uh, in, your, in your interpretation. You're, you're doing something that's good, but you're missing the big picture. You're actually holding people captive to the letter of the law when the whole point of the law was to set them free, to help them. That becomes especially true uh, when he talks about the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees could also come up with a bunch of rules that you could get around uh, some, some other things, you know, if you needed to. And probably done, at least in the beginning, with good faith. It was to help people live in the world and still be faithful to the law. Uh, but it had become a system. It had become a law of letter that uh, Jesus rebuked very, very sharply. And anybody, that includes our churches, who take the, law, the word of God seriously is going to have to think about how do we avoid the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, I, I remember telling one young lady one time that, you know, we are prime material for becoming Pharisees. And there was an absolute anger. No, we're not. <laughs> that's not us. You know, that is the spirit right there. We're not going to do it. We're not going to identify with those guys. They're bad. We're not. Okay? That concept of pride uh, can just really be riven through us. He also said, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. And I, I think there he could be addressing uh, biblical issues. The fair, like I said, the Sadducees rejected the resurrection. They rejected the authority of, of God's word or to a large part of it. They were very worldly and they collaborated with the, with the Roman system. They were the, the, the high priests and so on like that. They were all fair, uh, Sadducees and they had real power. When Jesus actually offended them, Jesus went to the cross. And that they were the they were the prime movers behind his crucifixion and handing him over to the to the uh, governor. And the Pharisees have been trying that for quite a while. All right, um, you can look at some of this. It's already getting time to close. I would like to come down to this life lessons. Uh, what do we learn? What are some things that we can learn that we can really grab a hold of and make part of our personal life? One of them is the reality of the of the incarnation. Jesus was a real flesh and blood person who spoke to real flesh and blood people, right? He was unique, definitely, but he lived in a real time. He spoke to people with real cultural issues. I find that amazing. Uh, how does that affect my prayer life? Uh, you've struggled already, haven't you, with praying, with being tired, with just wondering, where is God? Think of Jesus. Think of him relating with those sinners, which made people so upset, and eating with them. Remember, you're not supposed to do that. That's identifying with them. Uh, and certainly he didn't excuse their sin, of course not. Uh, but he related with them, and he did not scorn them. He did not, uh, he did not uh, reject them, and they loved him. I just find that amazing. So put yourself in those shoes. Here is the incarnate Christ. Let's talk to him, just like Mary did. Sit at his feet. Another thing I love that Jesus said one time was, um, the works that I do, you shall do, and... What else? Greater works. <laughs> How can we be doing greater works in Christ? Here's what I think. Christ as a person was, was bound by his incarnation. He was only in one place at one time. He was never in two places at the same time. Right? He, did, he went about doing good. He did mighty works and so on like that. But he was always bound by his physical body. Uh, 
not always bound in the sense that he escaped his body, he, he did miraculous things, but like I said, he was not, it was after he went to heaven and his spirit came down and enveloped the earth. The word spirit means air, breath, wind. Just as the wind encompasses the earth, so did the spirit of Christ. And anybody who is moved by that spirit is doing, there are millions of people today working over the earth, maybe doing something small like giving a glass of water to somebody or helping somebody out or something like that, but they are all over the earth. That's a greater work yet than what Christ was able to do in his incarnate state here. So I just find that amazing. Uh, relating with the Son and Father while praying and reading, I, I mentioned that. Uh, sharing the good news of the Lordship of Christ, that fact that he said uh, God is going to act. This, by the way, is Jesus' answer. Uh, what, uh, who are we, Israel? What's wrong? We are in exile. Uh, uh, I forgot the second question, but then it's uh, the wrong type of revolution. That's what's wrong with us. And what's the solution? Returning good for evil and taking upon myself the consequences of being ruled by God. Jesus embodied the kingdom. He exemplified the kingdom. He was at the center of the kingdom that he announced. And so announcing that good news, gospel, good news of the kingdom, there's good news. Because what's good about a good king? All you needed to be in the ancient world was to know what's bad about a bad king. It's horrible. You have a tremendous oppression coming upon you. That's bad news, right? The good news is that Jesus is king. Uh, and it's, again, saturated through the, through the New Testament, that concept is. Cultivating a Christ-centered worldview, becoming part of the story, looking at our own culture through the eyes of Christ. That's what we, can, that's what we need to do. All right. God bless you. You're dismissed. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.